0: Creating a regular exercise routine has the most benefits in terms of self-control because it not only strengthens the prefrontal cortex, it actually improves the connections of that area of the brain to the other areas of the brain that are responsible for helping you reach goals.
1: You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits with up to a massive 30% savings for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Philex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at phylex.com.au. Exercise scientist Morwenna Kerwin is passionate about helping people live healthier lives through motivation and behavioral health psychology. Here she chats with the fitness industry podcast Oliver Kitchingman about short-term and long-term mindsets, setting boundaries around use of technology, strengthening self-control through small daily acts rather than grand gestures, and why PTs should take an afternoon nap.
2: Moenna, welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Moenna, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about your background?
0: Sure. So, I have a Master's in Psychology and a PhD in Health Behaviour Change, and I currently teach and research at Macquarie University in the area of Health Psychology and Behaviour Change.
2: Quite a big area, Health Psychology and Behaviour Change, and certainly an area that's become more prominent in recent years.
0: Definitely. And I really focus my energy on upskilling health professionals and how to communicate with clients in a way that leaves the client feeling motivated to change their behavior. And I focus particularly on lifestyle behaviors, so physical activity, nutrition, sleep, and managing stress.
2: Okay. those Sleep actually is something that I know has been in the media a lot, it seems to me, in the last year or so. I mean, mental health in general seems to have elevated its profile a lot in the last three or four years. I noticed that a lot of gyms and clubs will now put almost level pegging for the mental health benefits as the physical benefits, but sleep is also getting a lot a lot of traction and the, you know, the detrimental effects of poor quality of sleep or lack of sleep and the importance of getting good sleep.
0: Absolutely. We know that what they call sleep debt so getting less than six hours of sleep a night, mm-hmm is sort of equivalent to walking around drunk all day. You're really impaired in your brain. It's very difficult to show up and be the best version of yourself. And it really does undermine your ability to pursue the goals that you really care about when you are sleep-deprived.
2: Okay, so, I mean, fitness industry, that's what this podcast is for. It's for everyone who works in fitness and, I you know, predominantly personal trainers who are training clients who have got goals and nine times out of ten are struggling to to reach those goals or to maintain the behaviours that they need to to be on the path towards those goals. Moana, can you tell us how do we have two minds?
0: A health psychologist for a long time have talked about this idea that We have one brain but two minds. We have this part of ourselves that is very aligned with our long-term goals and values. We're willing to tolerate discomfort in the service of a valued goal. We're willing to do the harder thing because we really care about, you know, getting a certain outcome. But there is another part of us, this other part that doesn't give a toss about long-term goals and just wants to minimise pain, minimise stress, discomfort, do the default, do the easy and have instant gratification.
2: So when we're indecisive about something, say, uh, finishing a DIY project at home on a Sunday afternoon versus a text message that you get inviting you to meet friends for maybe a boozy barbecue lunch or something, we literally can't make up our minds between, you know, we know what we'd rather do, but then how do we we kind of weigh that up?
1: Well,
0: the way you weigh it up will actually depend on how well-resourced you are going into that situation. So, and we're all having, I suppose, the best way to think, we sort of have this inner conflict a lot. Maybe we got out of bed this morning, but maybe some part of us wants to go back to bed. You know, maybe we did go to the gym and exercise, but maybe some part of us wanted to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat junk food. So it is just acknowledging that we do have these two different parts. And depending on which system of the brain, because these align with different systems of the brain, whichever system of the brain is most active and dominant will actually then determine our inner experiences and as well as our behaviour.
2: Okay, so I mean, if we look at the the health problems facing Australians today and obviously obesity and overweight and sedentary behaviour is, is a huge issue and, you know, the lifestyle diseases that go with that, does this mean that, you know, a larger percentage of the population have more of the, the short-term rather than the long-term brain?
0: I would say that we really do struggle with self-control more today than previously and I think we have... I mean, something we haven't really touched on is technology. So we have this technology that entertains us constantly and that actually activates parts of the brain that are more impulsive. And we're so used to getting these constant hits of little dopamine and, oh, I got a text message and, oh, look at Instagram and, oh, at Facebook. It almost takes away this ability of ourselves to actually develop the skills to pay attention to one thing at one time. Instead, our focus is often split across checking our email, being on social media, listening to a conversation, being in a meeting. We're multitasking, which is a bit of a myth. We're actually switching tasks, which is different again, and doing it pretty poorly across the board. So I would say that people are depleted in a way we haven't previously been depleted. We are so easily entertained that we're easily distracted from our longer-term goals and values. It's so easy to get, you know, excited about the latest Netflix show to watch at night that you end up accidentally staying up really late, then not getting enough sleep, finding it hard to get up in the morning, and then not going to the gym and not doing the things that you know help you show up to be your best version of yourself. So I think we have all these challenges today that we didn't necessarily have, you know, 50, 100 years ago. And so that, along with the change in our food system, you know, more sedentary jobs, less incidental physical activity in our day, you know, has really contributed to obesity. We sleep a lot less because we have so much more distractions mm-hmm. as well. So all of those contribute, I think, to some of our health challenges.
2: Okay, well, if we can't go back a 100 years, you know, and... We probably don't want to, you know. There have been advantages with technology and social advances in the last hundred years. I guess we, you know, if we, if we can't take everything away, and you know, we're living by the by daylight hours, and we're going to bed at night because you know there's nothing to watch. You can just watch it if you if you wanted to because there's no electricity, <laughs> there's no light. You can't even stay up and read apart from maybe a candle. We're not going to go back to that time. Hopefully, if we are, then something bad's happened. Then I guess it's a case of learning how to manage all of these distractions.
0: I think so. I would never recommend that we go back in time, but I think we need to be really intentional with our use of technology. And I think we have to acknowledge that it isn't really that possible to do multitasking and be highly productive and creative and doing our best work. We actually need to practice the ability to focus our attention at one point of time. And so we would have to not only be intentional with our use of technology, but maybe have some strong boundaries around that. We know that, for example, if you were to read at night before you went to bed, but one person read a book and the other person read from their iPad, the person reading on the iPad would produce 50% less melatonin, Mm -hmm. which melatonin is important because it sort of tells us it's time to go to bed. It helps you go to sleep and stay asleep and do deeper sleep. And so we're blowing up our brains. Every evening when we're having you know TV on, we're using devices late at night, we need to actually shut off this blue light that's emanating from our screens and this is a new problem. Like this has only been happening in the last probably decades since smartphones have become very popular, that we have this new challenge that we didn't have previously.
2: So, I mean, it's a, a constant challenge and trying to, to switch from the immediate gratification way of thinking of going, I'm, I'm just going to just gonna have a quick scroll of the my social media before I go to bed. And then, you know, you're down a, an hour rabbit hole to, to thinking, well, I've got to get into the mindset where, you know, I've got this much to do tomorrow. I want to feel really bright eyed and pushy tailed in the morning. How do you flip from one to the other?
0: It is really a mindset. And one of the things we need to do is get really clear about your bigger values and your bigger goals. Because if we can't remember what we really care about, we will go down the rabbit hole and just binge watch a show on TV and go to bed late. And we're not really clear on you know what, I really care about something that's much bigger than this. I don't need to just be entertained. I'm going to prioritise my own optimization. So when we are trying to flip the switch in that way, it's sort of almost having to create the connection. I do this a lot with clients. Try to help them find the connection between getting enough rest and performing well. Mm. And when they start to go, you know, I can do okay with no sleep for one night, but you have two or three nights of consecutively poor sleep. I don't know about you, Ollie, but I show up as a different person and I'm not my best self and I'm not tolerant and I'm easily distracted and I easily wanna go and just maximize pleasure, minimize stress and discomfort and do the easy thing rather than really the things we want to achieve in life they're hard things. We have to be willing to do difficult things. So sleep is a real priority. And I think as personal trainers, we need to start talking to our clients about sleep because it impacts their ability to perform, you know, in the session with you at the time. But it's also important in regulating how much they eat. We know, we know how the brain functions. The brain does not like it when you have not slept. And it will go looking for foods that are highly palatable, lots of sugar, lots of fat, looking for a quick fix because the brain's a bit exhausted.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I would certainly say when you've got some, you know, a few days without getting enough sleep, you, you're accumulating this sleep that it's, it, maybe you're subconsciously more likely to make bad or, you know, poor food choices, but maybe you're partly consciously thinking, oh, well, you know, I deserve to treat myself because I'm, you know, I'm feeling, you know, I, I haven't had enough sleep and maybe it's through your own choices or maybe not. So there's, it, it almost works on two levels.
0: It really does. I mean, the first thing does, it does when you don't get enough sleep, it impairs your prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain just behind the forehead. And it's the self-control center of the brain. It's the one that really helps you make good decisions, think about your long-term goals. It helps you assess the pros and cons of doing something and paying really close attention. And the minute you lack sleep... It almost impairs it, as I said before, when you lack sleep, it's almost like you're drunk. Mm -hmm. It does that to the brain. And because of that, it's not only that you don't have the capacity really to make really good decisions, everything's just a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. And then double whammy on that, we let ourselves off the hook. We also go, well, I'm really tired, so I deserve this donut, you know. And so we start doing what we call moral licensing, which is this whole we give ourselves permission to treat ourselves even if we haven't even made progress towards a goal, even if we're thinking about it. So let's say today's, you know, Friday, maybe on Monday I'm going to start a new diet. I feel really good about myself. I might go out to dinner and have pizza and beer for dinner because I know that on Monday I'm starting a new diet. And we have this amazing ability in our mind to, to talk ourselves into treating ourselves and indulging ourselves. But if instead I was to think about, well, why am I going on a diet? What's the real purpose of dieting I want to lose weight why do I want to lose weight you know oh because I want to feel better why do you want to feel better well then you know I'll be a better partner and I'll be a better mum why do you want to be a better partner and be a better mum I know this is painful questioning but when you keep going why 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 eventually you go well I want to be happy and you go well you're not happy no because I'm not being the best version of me And we want to drill down with our clients about that. Get to the deeper thing. Don't accept the whole, I just want to lose weight. Why? Because I want to feel good in my body. That's not good enough. We need to go deeper again and just prompt them. But you certainly do need to have some type of relationship with the client before you prompt into the most deep and meaningful Mm -hmm. goals. So make sure you develop a rapport first before you go into that deep questioning. But like, I would hope that, As personal trainers, you try to develop a relationship with your client where you eventually can talk about really meaningful stuff because exercise is a vehicle for improving our health so that we can reach our biggest goals in life. And those goals might be just, you know, to be the best parent and the best colleague and be the best entrepreneur, whatever it is that your clients really want in the grand scheme of things, we want to tap into that so we can converse about it. And as I said, we can then help them switch into the system of the brain that is thinking about long-term goals and assessing, is my behavior right now moving me towards what I really care about? Okay, or is it making, you know, am I moving away? And that is probably the biggest thing we want to actually start talking to our clients about.
2: Okay, so I mean, this is all, I guess we're kind of talking about willpower here. So you, you spoke before about the prefrontal cortex, and this is like the, the, the home of our uh, willpower muscle, as it were.
0: Yeah, it is. And I, I talk a lot about willpower with my clients, the students I teach at university. We focus on it a lot because I think sometimes as health professionals and fitness professionals, we walk around sort of with a little bit of this mindset that our clients are lazy. And they're not trying hard enough. Mm. And it's important then that that's not actually going to be a great way to create a rapport with a client. If deep down you're thinking, gosh, you're lazy, just harden up, do what I tell you to do, that won't actually motivate your client to actually move forward. So what we want to do is we want them to help to think about this idea that everyone's conflicted and one part of us wants to do it and one part of us doesn't. And willpower is something we want to strengthen. And the way we start strengthening it is, first of all, redefining it. So, most people, when I talk to them about willpower, they go, Ugh, I've got none of that. Mm. And they think about it's making themselves do something they don't want to do. And my definition of willpower is the complete opposite of that it's the ability to make choices that are consistent with our highest goals and values, even when it's difficult, even when it's uncomfortable even when you're exhausted, even when some part of you doesn't want to do it. And it's really knowing then what you really care about and of being willing to tolerate discomfort, being willing to control certain urges and other instincts in the service of what we care about the most.
2: I mean, it's it's a hard sell, isn't it? Because, I mean, (laughs) if you... You can put a positive spin on it, obviously, because it's great to be developing your willpower in pursuit of these longer-term goals. But at the same time, it's, you know clients are going to be thinking, well, this is basically I'm just denying myself pleasure in the short term. you know, And is that good for their mental well-being in the long term?
0: Well, once again, it's that different mindset, isn't it? So if we start to think of willpower as being this thing where we're just denying ourselves what we really want to do. What we're really saying is that our bigger values and our bigger goals are shoulds, the things I should do. They're not things that you deeply care about and that are your greatest priority in life. And that's why we want to switch the mindset to willpower is not denying yourself. Willpower is moving towards what you care about most in the world. And it's about making choices every day that help you become the best version of you. And if we think about it from that perspective, then we're less likely to let ourselves off the hook. Whereas if we think it's willpower is denying myself the pleasure, then unfortunately we're more likely to go, well, I deserve that, you know, that treat, and I deserve to just, you know, numb out to Netflix. Whereas if we think, oh, willpower is is me making the harder choice because it's something I deeply care about... And I would actually argue that that's better for our mental health and well-being is we feel the best in ourselves when we're moving towards and making progress on a goal. And that's not taking the easy route. That's taking the difficult yeah. route. Like that's when you feel the most successful in yourself is when you've done something hard, not when you take the easy option out.
2: Mm-hmm. Easy come, easy go, I guess. You know, it's the, uh, you know, the harder you work, the more the reward, the greater the reward, of course, if you're talking about willpower as a muscle that's getting stronger, I guess it also means it can get fatigued.
0: Yeah, we do talk about the muscle model with willpower, so, which is great for trainers because trainers love muscles. So willpower, it's, imagine that we have this one resource, this one muscle of willpower within us, and we can strengthen it. I mean, that's the good news. But at the same time, we can fatigue it. So if you go to the gym and you smash your legs, You don't expect your legs to perform well for the rest of the day. If you take your willpower muscle and you smash it, you make yourself do something really that's so difficult, you're going to find that eventually you're not going to be able to continue at that level of intensity because it will fatigue and then it will show up in other areas of your life where you're unable to follow through. So when we want to strengthen our willpower, we want to be strategic, just the same way that you don't smash your legs every day because you really can't maintain that level. It's the same thing that you train strategically. You strengthen your self-control muscle specifically by doing small acts that actually challenge your self-control. So they've done some great studies with this. They've done studies where they've shown that by just paying attention to your posture, for example, in all day, every time you walk under a doorway, you have to stand up tall and reset your posture. All we're doing is activating the prefrontal cortex to pay attention. And any moment you get a chance to, you reset your posture and you diarize that. This is a study they did it for two weeks. They also, yep, yeah, look, improved posture already. Look at that. They did another arm um, of this study where they actually got people just to give a food diary, not to change mm-hmm. But just to keep a food diary. And once again, and I'm sure many of the trainers out there who are listening, I mean, you can attest to this. As soon as someone has to pay attention to what they're currently doing, often their behavior begins to change. Clients don't like to write down what they really eat. So for the three days that they're completing that food diary, they might just improve what they're eating just by paying attention to it. And that's actually a difficult thing when you're a researcher because you know that just by putting someone in a study and asking them to keep a food diary will potentially improve their health beyond what we're trying to do with them. So any type of small act that requires you to utilise self-control by paying attention closely is something that will strengthen your self-control capacity over time.
2: Okay, so I mean, talking in terms of training muscles... If you're going to the gym and you know you're working on hypertrophy, then you're, there are behaviours that you can do before you get in the gym to start strengthening it to better prepare yourself for that in terms of nutrition and rest and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for willpower?
0: Well, absolutely. I always try and get my clients to think about little acts of self-control that they can do every day that are small enough mm-hmm. to not completely deplete their self control capacity but to slowly strengthen it over time and this is really simple stuff you walk into your house for example I used to throw my shoes off on the floor my self-control little practicing every day is I pick up the shoes and I put them in the shoe rack you know when you're washing a dish when you've finished using a dish maybe you wash it up straight away and these are little acts and we find that if you do two bigger things after a while you can't maintain it and it blows out your self-control in terms of exercise, I know we haven't really touched on this, but I'm pretty sure that your listeners are big fans of exercise, mm. as am it's, I. i hoping. <laughs> and one of the great things about exercise is not only does it make you very healthy in lots of other areas, it specifically trains your prefrontal cortex. And we found that almost beyond anything else you can do, creating a regular exercise routine has the most benefits in terms of self-control because it not only strengthens the prefrontal cortex, Mm. it actually improves the connections of that area of the brain to the other areas of the brain that are responsible for helping you reach goals. And it also seems to have this ricochet where it not only improves, obviously, that part of the brain, but it also seems to give you momentum in other areas of your life, the mood boost. All of a sudden, you sort of can start to change your identity. Oh, I'm someone who exercises. Someone who exercises doesn't really smoke, so I cut back on my cigarettes. They don't really drink all the time, so they cut back on my alcohol. And we have found that it has this beautiful ricochet effect. So I know I don't need to preach to the converted about how awesome exercise is, but we need to know that just by your clients going consistently to see you or going to the gym consistently, they are going to start strengthening their self-control capacity and then be able to use that in other areas of their life.
2: Okay. I mean, it's always good to hear more reasons for people to exercise. <laughs> I mean, it seems like there are a thousand and, you know, and we're ever-growing, so... And So you, that's exercise is one one strategy for strengthening your willpower. I mean, as you say, look, the fact that they're going to see a trainer in the first place, or going to the gym, obviously shows a certain degree of willpower that, that they've exercised in getting to that point. Mm. So then, I guess it's a case of encouraging that and and turning it into turning it into a habit.
0: Yeah, look, it's consistency over intensity. Always, they have they have utilized some willpower just to show up. Definitely. And we have to give them credit for that. We also have to talk to them in a way that they're not going to give themselves credit for exercising to a point that they then move away from their bigger goal. So how often have you heard a client come to the gym and then the next thing is on the way home that is popping the macas and get some takeaway because they've been really good and they deserve that treat. So we need to once again, as I talked about earlier, talk to them in a way where we're reminded about why we're doing the exercise to begin with
2: any other strategies?
0: Oh gosh, where do we get started? So the theme of today is that we want to train the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. and what's great is these days we've got MRI machines and we can really measure and have a look at that part of the brain and see what behaviours light it up and they've done a lot of research in of recent times with people who meditate And they were really surprised to notice that when you're meditating, it's lighting up the same areas of the brain that light up when you ask someone in an MRI machine to resist temptation. And they started to go, oh, wow, this is really the same capacity because when we are meditating, what we're really doing is we're trying to pay attention at one point in time. We want to notice if we get distracted and then we come back. And that's really what self-control is, that we want to notice, we want to focus on one thing, and when we get distracted, we want to notice that we're moving away from our goal and then bring ourselves back in alignment with what we really care about. Mm. So meditation seems to have this amazing effect on the brain of strengthening our capacity for self-control. If I have to choose... Like if I have a client who's just about to start exercising and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want them to strengthen their self-control. I'm going to recommend meditation. I'm going to recommend all these behaviours for Mm -hmm. them. The first thing I would focus on is the exercise, the consistency over intensity, getting them to try to habitually make it something that they do I would say daily, but maybe that's my bias as an exercise scientist. I just know the awesomeness of it. And I'm sure you're probably the same for all the listeners out there. But some type, of, some type of daily practice where they're going for a walk for 10 minutes after work, you know, maybe they see you a couple of days a week to train, maybe they come to the gym other days and just let them know that being physically active is not limited to just going to the gym. But the more they do it, the better they're going to be at performing in their whole life.
2: Even with the best intentions, all of us are going to slip up occasionally. So what is the best way to rebound from sort of falling off the willpower wagon, as it were?
0: Yeah, that's a common question that I get all the time. And I think there's two, two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about, one, how we respond to ourselves when we don't meet our own expectations and then how we talk to our clients about it. Because in my experience, and this seems to be the thing that's most argued about whenever I teach this in my classes, where students are just determined not to believe what I say about this, is that when we have a willpower failure, we don't meet our expectations, we fall off the wagon, our first instinct is to be highly critical of ourselves and to be to the level of harshness. Like we say things to ourselves that we would not say to another human being. And that type of negative self-talk that is quite harsh, we often have this belief that we need to be hard on ourselves, that being hard on ourselves is really important. It's going to motivate us to be better in the future. We can't let ourselves off the hook. We couldn't possibly be kind to ourselves. That's not going to teach us the lesson we need to learn, which is to toughen up and do better. And the research is actually the opposite that actually the harder we are on ourselves after we have not met our expectations, the more likely it is that we will go and soothe ourselves with the thing that we're trying to move away from. So let me give an example. Mm. Let's say that we break our diet. We're doing really well, we're really good, and then someone brings a birthday cake to work, and we have a few too many slices, and we feel awful. And we're we just having the you know, negative self-talk, I'm a terrible person, I'm so useless, I'm a loser. I'm going to be fat forever, my trainer's going to hate me, you know, and then they need to soothe themselves to feel better because they feel so awful and so they're more likely to downward spiral mm-hmm. and the time that they spend having fallen off the wagon will be longer than if they had a different response. And that would be? And that different response would be, and I know it's not sexy, kindness. So kindness is not letting ourselves off the hook. It's not going, ah, never mind. No, it's thinking about how would I respond to a dear friend of mine who's in the exact same circumstances as me. If my friend came to me and they'd broken their diet and they'd eaten a few pieces of cake at work and they're feeling really rubbish about themselves, what would I say? In most instances, you probably wouldn't say, the things you would say to yourself if you were in that, you'd probably say, oh, gosh, that's that's really difficult. You that would, sucks. You wouldn't have many
2: friends if you were that that blatantly um, honest <laughs> or rude as we are with ourselves.
0: Yeah. Rude is a good word. Self-loathing is a good word. It's, it's like it's unbelievably strong, the self-critic. And if you think about what would I say to a dear friend that was experiencing this and then you turn those words in towards yourself it almost allows us to then re-access the prefrontal cortex. But when we're self-critical, it actually makes us feel threatened. Our brain doesn't realise that that criticism is coming from us. It could come from anyone. And when we criticise, we feel threatened. We go into the stress response of the brain. We feel more impulsive. We feel much less likely to make good decisions. We just feel rubbish and we want to soothe ourselves, which means probably engaging in unhealthy behaviours to make ourselves feel better. So if you were to have a message of kindness for yourself, it would be something like just noticing. One, I mean, the first step is noticing. It's awareness. So so often we go straight to that negative self-talk. And we don't even notice we've done it. It's so habitual. We've done it our whole life. And so you just go, oh, wow, I'm being really harsh on myself right now. Oh, it really sucks to feel so crap about eating that cake. That's just awareness. It's just acknowledging what you're feeling. Okay, And then you need to expand it out and sort of go, you need to remember that it's not unique to you. What we do when we're feeling really down is we always imagine it's just us. I'm the only person that experiences this. I'm secretly really flawed and imperfect and no one else can understand what I'm going through. And so we need to actually consciously choose to, to remember that every single person on the planet struggles at times. We all make mistakes That we're not alone. That's the second part of the kindness message. And the third part is actually just to go (sighs) take a breath. Can I be kind to myself right now? I know it's not what I want to do. I want to beat myself up, but let me try something different because I've beaten myself up for decades and it probably hasn't worked. So if we can practice doing that type of response to ourselves when we don't meet our own expectations, then we can start doing it with our clients. Because our clients, depending on your relationship, they might confess to you all of their sins when they come to their training session. And how you respond to that can either help motivate them to pick up and put their shoes back on and really give it a good go, or to feel really crap about themselves and just downward spiral. And the way you respond is you acknowledge the difficulty that they've been experiencing. Mm -hmm you put it into a wider context you let them sort of know that you too experience struggle at time and we're all in the same boat and then you give them a message of kindness where you just say you know please don't be too hard on yourself about it everyone goes through this but what really matters is how quickly we get back on the wagon and we start again we don't want this to lengthen out into weeks and months and years
2: great great advice for for trainers to to be embracing with their clients and for clients to be embracing too. So I mean, from this, I'm, I'm kind of taking away there there are things to be that people can work on, such as probably reducing alcohol intake, probably increasing sleep or quality of sleep, particularly I think in terms of the you know what they're doing before they go to bed, less blue light, etc., eating well. You know, and all these things can take willpower in themselves, but these are <laughs> and reducing stress and that's a good if you if you're looking after those areas, then you're sort of you're preparing yourself for to make the most of the benefits you can get through exercise and and meditation as well
0: yeah, and as you said, like the things that I'm saying impair our ability to show up well, like lack of sleep, having too much alcohol letting ourselves get really hungry, we never show up well when we're hungry, mm-hmm. and um, stress, which will undermine our self-control capacity, if we were to just focus on one of those areas, and because we, once again we can't do it all mm-hmm. because we have a limited amount of self-control, but when we only focus on one of those areas, whatever one has the biggest effect on you. So we sort of know instinctively, oh, gosh, if I sleep well, and then we prioritise that. We prioritise that. I'm just going to tweak it. And I was just going to put out there for all the trainers. I know a lot of you do split shifts, you know, and you work really hard and you're doing early mornings and you're doing late evenings. And I'm not sure if it's within your ability, but if you could have a nap in the middle of the day, it could probably change the quality of your life because you can, you know, accumulate sleep. You don't have to get it all in one chunk. And I think what's important to know is some of the best athletes in the world will sleep 12 to 13 hours a day, 12 to 13. So we're talking about some of the best tennis players in the world, for example, they prioritize sleep because they know sleep is recovery. Sleep is the thing that I need to actually perform. And I can train all day, but I need to recover and rest really, really well. And we can't promote any of these behaviors to our clients if we're not doing them ourselves because we want to be authentic and we want to be role models. So you need to take away from this whatever you need to work on is the thing that I would recommend you focus on really drilling down to and committing to and it's consistency over intensity and then once you feel like you've got a really strong momentum in it then I would start just talking to your clients about man, i got one hour more sleep a night and it's just changed the quality of my life. Or talk to your clients about other clients that have had some success in some area. And, you know, we really are social creatures and we really care about what other people are doing. So we want to know what your other clients are doing and what they're doing well. And we, we're going to be quite persuaded by that rather than you as a trainer just telling them directly, get more sleep, eat a healthy diet, exercise every day, manage your stress. That's just some thoughts. Mm.
2: So, I mean, trainers could turn this into like it, it could be a, a, a different focus each each month or each, you know, having having clients kind of check in with the, or maybe even keep a sleep diary, things like this?
0: Absolutely. There's heaps of apps out there these days that people can sort of, I mean, once again, if we just get them to pay attention to it, it's going to improve. Mm-hmm. If we ask them even for one week, can you just write down for me what time you go to bed, and what time you get up? It's more for their sake than for yours because all you want to do is start seeing, well, how long are they actually sleeping? You're not, you're not able to see the quality of the sleep, but it will make them pay attention. And then you start trying to help them create those connections between if I do this, gosh, everything else in my, else in my life is better.
2: So even without saying I want, to see, I want to see you sleeping more minutes by the end of the week than, 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 than at the beginning of the week and like similarly with the food diary I'm not saying I, I want to see you eating less sugar and less unprocessed carbs by the end of the week, literally just asking them to keep a diary with no expectation or, or guidance on what they should be doing will make them kind of make, make that connection themselves and therefore kind of have a bit, a bit more ownership of it.
0: Definitely about accountability and ownership, we really want to move away from this medical model of you tell me your problems and I tell you how to fix them because we actually know that it doesn't work how many times have you told a client what to do and they don't do it and we need to be a bit more subtle than that we just want them to start paying attention if we notice that there's gaps in their knowledge like they actually don't know what to eat then we want to give them some some guidelines around that but a lot of people have a lot of knowledge about what they should be doing and we really want to support them in trying to create more consistency around doing those healthy behaviours. So many of my students say, oh, but tell us the really good stuff. And I'm like, this is the good stuff. If you sleep and if you make healthy choices with eating and you exercise every day and you do some type of mindfulness techniques that are going to help you manage stress, you are going to change productivity. You're going to change the success of your life by doing those four things consistently because they have the biggest bang for their buck
2: okay well of those look i think you know the sleep is one thing the exercise well hopefully the personal is in it, already in a position to be assisting with that nutrition maybe a nutritionist or maybe just some you know some nutritional guidance without you know overstepping the mark on the, on the part of the trainer so that leaves mindfulness so what's a, what's a simple sort of mindfulness technique or meditation technique that maybe clients could or, or the trainers could encourage their clients to do
0: mindfulness gets a bad rap it's a terrible it's a terrible word it doesn't really sell itself very well. It really depends what your client, you know, you get say the word meditation and someone you can just see close shuts down on the spot. So you've got to be, you've got to choose well what you're going to recommend. It depends. Some people really like to go to yoga classes at the gym. Any type of yoga class will usually have some type of idea of focusing on your breath, paying attention to your body. So that's naturally going to cultivate self-control because you're strengthening your prefrontal cortex. I have many clients that don't want to go to the gym. And so because of that, and they don't want to go to a class, I would recommend that they use an app and maybe do some type of seated meditation. It's breath focused. We can make it very non-spiritual. It does not have to be religious. And it can be really about, actually, I'm strengthening my self-control muscle right now. I'm doing a breathing technique. Call it a breathing technique because it is. It's sitting there. Can you pay attention to your breath when your mind wanders? Can you notice it and then bring it back? And when they come and tell you that they don't want to do it anymore because they're terrible at it tell them how terrible you are at it because we're all terrible at it and that's the whole point because we want to get distracted so we get the opportunity to come back to our breath and that's when we strengthen our self-control.
2: So they will be a bit less terrible at it by next month?
0: (laughs) Definitely, we really do improve and I know I've said it, consistency over intensity so because I want to develop a habit with a client I'll just say to them I only want you to meditate for one minute one minute every day And it's really hard to argue with that. It's really hard to go, I don't have time for one minute. And you're like, I don't want you to do more than a minute. You are not to do more than one minute, but I want you to sit down at whatever time we negotiate and I want you to pay attention to your breath for one minute. In most instances, they'll sit there for five minutes, okay? But if I keep reinforcing that the goal is only one minute, it's only one minute. If you do more, great, high five. Then what happens is they develop the habit, and then we can increase the intensity. Yeah, let's do three minutes. Let's do five minutes. And the research shows that even as little as you know three to five minutes a day, you're going to get marked changes in your prefrontal cortex over the next eight to 10 weeks. So consistency over intensity. Whenever I recommend this, we haven't really talked about the fact that meditation not only strengthens self-control, but it actually sort of calms down the stress response in your brain. And so many of us live in this constant low level of stress that's just always there, this tension that we're never doing enough and we're not enough and we need to work harder and we're not in all of this. And it actually quietens down your brain and it creates space and you have more clear thoughts. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And I suppose you have to market it depending on your client. What might appeal to them about that?
2: Okay, that's great advice. Yeah, because you, I can imagine a lot of trainers might have a bit of, as you say, that using the term meditation or mindfulness might not sit that comfortably with them, and and their clients might see that it sort of jars with what they expect of their trainer because they're used to being, you know, prescribed. A physical activity routine, and to suddenly be talking in a kind of a yogic language might be a bit over, a bit too much. So, yeah, just t- in turning it into a daily practice of just breathing sounds like a really good good step.
0: Yeah, we've got to meet our clients where they're at, and I mean, I teach yoga. I've taught yoga for a long time, but I'm still really mindful that it does get a difficult response from some people, mm. and even the recommendation for people to go to yoga class, it's still a big commitment, like even a one hour class. Mm that can be tricky for someone to be consistent with that so I would still beyond that recommend that they sit down for one minute a day and yeah there's not much they can argue with which is great when you make the goals really really small because it's a habit you want to help them cultivate over time you make it so small that it feels silly to not do it it feels silly to rock up to your training and go yeah whoops missed meditation for five days And you can talk to them about setting a reminder on their phone because we get distracted. You might talk to them about what time of day is the best for you to do it and sort of connect it to an existing habit so that it's easier for us to remember to do it. Little things like that can be really helpful.
2: Okay, dear listener, as soon as you finish listening to this podcast, I want you to sit for one minute and clear your mind. Moena, thank you very much for all of this really interesting stuff if anyone wants to find out anything more about what you do where can they find that
0: i have a website it's very tricky to spell my name so i can spell it m-o-r-w-e-n-n-a kirwan k-i-r-w-a-n.com i do deliver workshops for health professionals about how to coach clients in changing their behavior so if you'd like more details check out my website
2: Fantastic. Thank you again for talking to the Fitness Industry Podcast.
0: You're welcome.
1: To learn effective coaching and behavior change techniques, check out Network's online course, Coaching Skills for Maximal Client Results, accredited for CECs and other continuing education points. Go to the Network website, select the Courses tab, and click on Coaching and Behaviour Change. Members of Australian Fitness Network save 25% on this course, so head to fitnessnetwork.com.au to grow your skill set and fitness career today. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Philex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar, at phylex.com.au.